Hey, yo. How are you guys doing? Good, good. You guys are all fresh, like you just got here. It's not like the last night where you stayed up two nights too late and you've already like had your camp relationship that like you fell in love, broke up, then learned the la person's last name and then found out that they live on the other side of the state and that you'll never see them again. Like you're fresh. And so I'm excited for what the Lord's gonna do. I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, and so my name is Mike and hi. Uh, I'll tell you something. So you yelled out, hi, Mike. Uh, when I was your age, uh, I don't know what your age is, but when I was younger, uh, I got to go to a concert with the David Crowder band. This has nothing to do with anything. I just feel like you need to hear this story about me. And so uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, and so it was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, at the Bank of Oklahoma Arena. Uh, and it was dark, you know, it's a concert, right? So all you can see on the stage, it's like there's this moment David Crowder's playing, he's like finger picking his guitar, saying something probably deep and reflective, and I'm like, David Crowder's my dad! I yelled that out. <laughs> and he stopped playing, and he was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> So uh, if any of you were going to yell out, Mike's my dad, uh, uh, no, I'm not. But, but I am here, I am here with my family. I don't, I didn't hear it and I'm not going to, I'm not going to respond to it. And so I am here with my family. And so with that in mind, uh, so my wife's here uh, and then my two sons. And so I have a four-year-old named Apollo. He actually turned four years old yesterday. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. He's not in the room, but you will, you will see him this week. Uh, and then I have an eight-month-old named Julius. Uh, and so he's here, and you also see him. He looks like Maggie Simpson, where, like he's in a little star costume, can't move his body, trying to stay warm. And so um, the reason I bring them up is because yesterday at school was like the greatest day of Apollo's life at school. So not only was it his birthday, he got to celebrate his birthday, but they were doing like theme week. And we actually been gone all week. We were in San Diego for his birthday from Monday until, until Tuesday night uh, or until Wednesday night. And then we came to school Thursday and then we left this morning and so he didn't go to school today. So like, this is the greatest week of his life. Like he's got to do fun stuff. And, but they were doing theme week and yesterday's theme was Cat in the Hat. And so one of the teachers at his school, and this, this David Crowder had nothing to do with anything. This actually does have something to do with it. Uh, one of his teachers dressed up as the cat in the hat. And like all in, full body suit, like, like went all in, it was great. And it made me start thinking about what, do, what are my favorite things, uh, or my favorite Dr. Seuss books? And there's, there's a lot of them, right? Like maybe you're like, I said cat in the hat, and maybe you're like, that's my joint right there. <laughs> or maybe you're like, you know what? I, I just love how the Grinch stole Christmas. Or maybe you're like one of those deep cut people, you're like one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. <laughs> But I'm just gonna tell you, there are some people who are like butter side up, butter side down. But I'm just gonna tell you the greatest Dr. Seuss book of all time is Green Eggs and Ham. Yeah! And so there's actually, so there's a lot about Green Eggs and Ham that you need to know, but one of the things that you need to know is that Green Eggs and Ham was written because of a bet. And so um, Dr. Seuss is uh, his publisher, said, hey, when you wrote Cat in the Hat, you used 140 different unique words in the book. I don't think you can do less than that. And if you read Green Eggs and Ham, it only has 50 unique words. And so he won the bet, his publisher never paid him, but since it's one of the most famous books of all time, I imagine that he, that he did okay even though he didn't get paid off on the bet. But here's part of why I love uh, Green Eggs and Ham. I just think it's a landmark book. 
And so if you haven't read Green Eggs and Ham, let me just help you out. It starts that this guy is in his house and another dude named Sam shows up in his house. I don't know how Sam gets in his house. Shows up with Green Eggs and Ham and he's like, hey, would you like some Green Eggs and Ham? To which I would say, no, they're green. Like no restaurant is like, hey, here's some Green Eggs and Ham, unless it's St. Patrick's Day. And so, Dr. Seuss is an author, if you didn't know that, like there you go. And so from there, Sam decides that he is going to try and break this man's will by asking him in every scenario he can possibly think of, do you want green eggs and ham? Do you want green eggs and ham? Do you want it in a box? Do you want it in a, in a fox? Do you want it in a train? Do you want it when it rains? Like he just like goes off. And I'm just waiting for the guy to respond, no, I do not want green eggs and ham. Get, like get off, I don't want them off the top. I don't want green eggs and ham. I'm about to call the cops. Like I'm waiting for that line in the book. And he finally wears him down and is like, look, if I finally try this, will you leave it alone? And when he says, yeah, I'll try it, he tries it. He's like, I actually like green eggs and ham. I do like them, Sam I am. I do like them in a, fo- within a box. I do like them with a fox. I do like them in a house. I do like them with a mouth. And like, he goes through everything that he says. And so why am I taking the time to tell you that? Because what green eggs and ham feels like is a silly little kid's story that you hear about and it says, okay, you should maybe try different things. But it's actually this deep cultural statement that Dr. Seuss was making that far too often we judge things on its appearance and won't enter in with it and we miss the beauty or the value of something that's actually maybe better than what we could have imagined. It's not just a kid's story, it's supposed to make you think about the world differently. Now, why I took the time to tell you all of that is because it's, a, it's probably likely that when you think about Jonah, a bunch of you raised your hands and said, hey, I've heard it, or at least I watched it on VeggieTales, that you're like, what, this is a kid's story. What's this got to do with me? In fact, there's uh, going to be a few challenges, and so uh, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 10, and I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that we face. Now, one of them is just this, that it feels really distant to read an Old Testament story about some guy. Like the, the reality is that you didn't wake up this morning like, should I go to Hume or should I go to Tarshish? Like you don't even know where Tarshish is. You don't know where Nineveh is. So this doesn't feel like it, it, it hits really close to home for you. Here's another thing. Maybe you're like, man, do you expect me to believe the story about a guy that got swallowed by a large fish? And maybe another layer to it even beyond that is, Okay, this feels distant because it feels like ancient history. It doesn't feel like it applies to my situation. And maybe it goes a little bit deeper because you're like, I need the Lord to do something else for me other than tell me a story about a guy who didn't do what he was supposed to do. I need to know that the Lord sees me where I'm at. And so my job over the next several meetings together of chapel is to answer some of those questions. And so let's, let's read verses 1 through 10. It says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. 
Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And so uh, here's what I want to do. I want to I set up the narrative by just asking some questions about where is Nineveh. Then I just want to take some time and talk about descending from uh, hatred to indifference. And then I want to end the conversation by just pointing out the awkwardness of the conversation that Jonah was having with these guys. And my hope is that as we do this, that you'll see the heart of God versus the heart of Jonah. And maybe it gives you a little bit of a window into who God is, but it also might be a mirror into who we are. And so with, with that in mind, let me pray one more time before we begin to pick the text apart. So Jesus, thank you. Uh, I just, my heart resonates with Harrison's that this is, there's no accidents. That there will never be another weekend like this where the people who are in this room, in this season of their life, are here to hear your word. And so they are not here by accident, but you want to speak out of the power of your book. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reach the hearts of students and adults alike, that they would walk out of here with their hearts uh, made to look more like yours. And so we trust you for that, not because of any oratory skill or any uh, wittiness that I could come up with, but that the power of the gospel is the power that transforms lives. And we just trust you to do that this weekend. So in your name we pray. Amen? Amen. And so as we look at the story, um, one of the things I want to say to you is, as you know the end of the story. And so this is kind of one of those difficult church moments where if I ask you a question, you know the right answer. Um, if nothing else, you'll default to Jesus. But if not defaulting to Jesus, you know that at the end of the story that Jonah is supposed to go help these people. And so let me maybe throw a wrench in the works. I actually think Jonah's reaction is a little bit reasonable. And so maybe what you don't know is maybe you don't know a little bit of Jonah's history, and maybe you don't know a little bit of Nineveh's history. And so Jonah, this is not the only time that he shows up in the Bible. Actually, he shows up in 2 Kings chapter 14, and there's this description. And when you read uh, the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, and the books of Chronicles, when you read them, it's actually this history of Israel, how they kind of became more and more of a wicked nation. So much so that Israel actually splits into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom that's Israel, the southern kingdom that's Judah. And if you begin to read about their kings, there's never a good king in Israel. Like they are always unfaithful. They always go after the, 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 the idols of the previous generations. And while Judah does have some good kings, there's never a good king in Israel. And when Jeroboam II rises up, it says that Jeroboam II rises up and he followed after the sins of his father. And when he followed the sins of his father, he expanded his borders because he listened to the prophets, the, the words of his servant, the prophet Jonah. And so Jonah was part of the cabinet of this wicked king that was having success and prospering. And in his day and age, when you were a king and you were trying to expand and prosper, the biggest threat to you was enemy nations. And one of those enemy nations would be Assyria, and part of Assyria was this place called Nineveh. 
Now, Nineveh it would be hard for you to find on a map today, so let me locate where Nineveh is for you. Uh, if you got on a plane and flew into Iraq and went to Mosul and just went a little bit north there, you would see the ruins of Nineveh, and so it's that part of the world where this was. But Nineveh was not just a place on a map. Nineveh was a people to be feared. Nineveh were the, this uh, aggressive set of people that were trying to take over nations. And when they took them over, it wasn't just that they wanted to take over their nation. They wanted to embarrass them. One of the ways that the, uh, the Ninevites, uh, the Assyrians, would, would punish people that they captured is that they would take them and they would bury them up to their neck in sand. And then they would take their tongues and stick them out where they couldn't close their mouths. And they would let them sit there and, and die of dehydration. Like just kind of wicked on a whole different level. And so if you know that, if you know that Nineveh is that level of wicked, that level of threat, that level of danger, if the Lord came to you and said, hey, you should go hang out with them, it's actually a reasonable response to be like, um, Lord, I'm not sure what you put in your tea this morning, but I, I'm not going there. And so the Lord comes to him and he says, hey, Jonah, rise up. He, and, and, I, and I think you should grab this language. He says, rise up. So directional, get up, go up, level up and go to Nineveh and say that their evil has come before me. Like I, I'm about to do, I'm about to do some stuff. Like either they need to turn or they're going to receive my wrath. And Jonah says, nah, homie, I'm blind, buying a pain ticket according to the gnomes. And I'm going the opposite direction. It's interesting, if you read your Bible, there's a thing called design and patterns. And it's a fancy, it's fancy language for themes, but it talks about that oftentimes there are things that happen in your Bible over and over again to teach you something about the direction that things are going. And so one of the design patterns of the scriptures is usually bad things happen when you go east. And so uh, if, let's, let's do a little trivia. Um, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they get kicked out of the garden, where do they get sent? East of Eden. They're oftentimes going to the east is a problematic place. That oftentimes to go east is to say that you're leaving the presence of the Lord and going somewhere more difficult. And so again, it would be reasonable if you grew up as this Jewish kid reading these stories that when you go east, you're going the wrong direction. And the Lord's saying, hey, right now you're in Joppa. You should go east and go to Nineveh and be like, no, this is a trick question. I'm not failing this pop quiz. Jesus is the answer, right? Like you, you, don't, you don't go. And yet the Lord called him to do that. And so everything that I'm seeing from Jonah is that, man, it would be reasonable for him to avoid going to this place because of the level of wickedness, because of the way that he was trained. Like all of that makes sense in my mind, but what I want to tell you is when you serve the Lord, that something might be reasonable, but it can be reasonable and still not be right. In fact, there's this reality that even Jonah's premise is kind of foolish because it says this, that he decided that he was going to go down to Joppa and so that way he could go to Tarshish so he could get away from the presence of the Lord. Here's the problem. He was seeing the Lord completely wrong because the Lord isn't like you and me. He's not bound to his seat. He's not bound to put one seatbelt on and that's the only place that you can be. Like God's on a different level than you, than you and me. Like I, I don't want to assume that. God isn't in the same category as you. 
If you read Romans chapter 11, Paul's writing, and at the end of his writing, he begins to say things like, who can, who can give the Lord counsel? Like, none of us have ever sought God down and be like, hey, let me tell you how to do this. Like, God's creative on a different level. Like, some of you are creative. Like, I can't wait. Like, I, I get to be part of um, this box sled mania that's going to be happening tomorrow. I get to be a judge. I will receive bribes, just so you know. Um, and some of you are going to be creative, right? Like, some of you are going to do some stuff that I'm going to be like, how did you do that out of cardboard and duct tape? But as creative as you are, you never stepped into nothing, looked out at nowhere, grabbed nothing, flung it across nowhere, told it to stay there, and it did. Like, this is how God created like, you might be creative, but you're not on his level. And so God is a completely different level. You can only be at one place at one time. He's everywhere at all times. And so if you know that about God, because you are a prophet that follows the God that is ruler over the sea and land, to try and get on a boat to run from his presence is a pretty dumb plan. Like, where are you going to go to hide from him? I've been a pastor for about 20 years. And some of you are like, really? You look young for that. Say it out loud, because that will be bribery that will help you with your box lid. And so, so, all right, all right, all right, I'm losing you. So, <laughs> I'm not your dad. So, here's what, so here's, here's what I want to point to. Here's what I want to point to. So, you've got this guy who's running from the presence of the Lord because he doesn't want to go to this place called Nineveh. And so it's strange to me that the Lord knows what he knows, and the Lord has more of a heart for this place than Jonah does. I understand his response, and I said that reasonable might be reasonable, but it doesn't mean that it's right. But I also want you to watch what's happening. And so I told you, hey, catch what's happening here, because I said, hey, he says, rise up and go. And then just read the description of what Jonah does. The second half of verse two, or verse three, he went down to Joppa, and then from there, he went down to the ship. If you skip down a few verses, it says that um, they were throwing cargo off the ship, and he went down into the inner part of the ship, and he laid down to go to sleep. I just want you to know that the writer of Jonah is doing something intentional to talk about this descent that's happening in Jonah. He descends from this place of listening to the voice of the Lord to saying, I'm going to be disobedient. He descends into, from this level of disobedient down to this level of indifference about the people that are around him. We'll talk about this more tomorrow, but you're going to see these unbelieving Gentiles do more to save him than he'll lift a finger to do to save them. And it's one thing to hate people like Nineveh who have done something or a threat to your people, but worse than hatred is indifference. There's a quote um, that says, the opposite of love is not hate, the opposite of love is indifference. And some of you are like, no, I'm pretty sure the opposite of love is hate. Here's the, here's the thing about hate. Hate takes energy. Like to hate somebody, like you've got to exert some force there. You shouldn't hate anybody, but you got to exert some force in doing that. So I'm a sports fan. Uh, we are in California, um, and so there are lots of sports teams, but there's only one that you should root for, and that's the Lakers. Um, I, 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 I cannot hear you shaming me in that. And so um, because I love the Lakers, I hate the Boston Celtics. Like, like if you show up wearing Boston green, if this were my church, I would excommunicate you. 
Like, like uh, some of you are like, what does excommunicate mean? Don't worry about it. Like, just, just know, you, you wouldn't come to church anymore. Like, it takes effort. Like, love and hate are actually two sides of the same coin because it takes passion to hate something. It takes energy to hate something. It takes focus. You got to know that thing. Like, like, hatred, there's energy to that. But indifference says, I don't even care that you exist. And so it's one thing to say that I am exerting some energy of hatred and passion towards you because of what you've done. But what we're seeing Jonah do at this point is he's so indifferent to what God has called him to do and so indifferent to the people that God has called him to that he's sleeping in a boat while these people are freaking out trying to figure out how they're going to survive. Think about how deep his heart has gotten into being far away from the Lord. That he just didn't even bother him to care anymore. That his heart has gone so cold that it's, it's lost the heartbeat of God in such a profound way that he can sleep on the bottom of the boat while other people's lives are in jeopardy because of his disobedience and he's not even bothered enough to open his eyes and be troubled by it. He is going down deeper and deeper. And even as we walk through chapter two tomorrow, we'll see this continued descent where he has to hit rock bottom before he realizes he needs the mercy of the Lord. And let me just skip ahead. You don't have to sink that low to get to the place that, to know that you need his mercy. And then the other part of this that I'm really interested in is just this awkward conversation. This has to be awkward. So these guys are like throwing stuff off the boat, trying to lighten the load. They're trying to pray to their gods and they're like, oh my goodness, this is not working. And they're like, hey, get the guy who, who's sleeping in the bottom of the boat, wake him up. And they're like, what are you doing, sleeper? Rise up, quit descending, level up, bro. Why don't you pray to your God? Because maybe that God, we don't even know who that is, but maybe that God will help rescue us. And they get him up and they say, hey, what, what's going on? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. And they're like, well, wait a minute. Tell us, tell us what you do. Tell us where you're from. Tell us who you worship. And, and it's interesting because as we read it, he, he responds. He didn't tell them what he does because that would be awkward if you say, hey, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a preacher who knows the living God and I should be telling you about him, but I'm not. But he says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Hold up. You worship the God who's got control over all of this and you're taking a nap? Like what is wrong with you? Like we're in trouble and the God who commands the waves, the God who commands the wind, the God who, has, who can get us to safe ground, you know him. You have a relationship with him. Apparently you say you fear him, but my definition of fear and your definition of fear don't seem to be the same. And you don't care enough to help us out? And so they get, become exceedingly afraid and they ask him the question, what's going on here? And hear the response, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. How cold does your heart have to be for you to be in conversation with somebody? Like, how does that conversation go? I mean, what's going on in your life, Jonah? You know, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> thought, thought that would be a good thing to do with this season of my life. Like, his heart is so cold and so far from the Lord that he is 
un- he's unashamed of the fact that he's so rebellious and so indifferent that he openly told them after telling them, I know the answer to your problem. What a scary place. I mentioned to you that this is both a window and a mirror. This is not just a silly kid's story, but it actually shows us something about the Lord and shows us something about ourselves. And so first, let me just talk about what it shows about the Lord. That the Lord has mercy on wicked, rebellious, cold-hearted people. He has mercy on wicked, rebellious, cold-hearted nations like Nineveh. People who are so wicked that they would try to kill people by pulling their tongues out of their mouth and letting them dehydrate because they couldn't move in the sand that they were buried in. People who made it their practice to push against the worship of his name by worshiping other idols and trying to harm the people that did worship his name. And yet he would send one of his prophets and say, you should go tell them that I've seen their evil and there's a reckoning coming, that he would give them a warning. That the heart of God is not to just crush those that are evil, but to show them mercy in such a way that they could turn around. But it also shows us something about us. And it makes us ask the question, where's Nineveh? And you're like, near Iraq, north of Mosul? Not where's Nineveh physically, but let me say it this way. Where's the Nineveh of your heart? Where's the place that the Lord is saying, I see wickedness and rebellion and indifference and, I'm, and it's come before my sight and I'm sending the word to make that place alive. Like you, we, we prayed it multiple times. You are not here by accident because there are some of you here that are in this room. And I joked about it earlier that you're here for your camp relationship or you're here because of tubing or you're here because your buddies came. But if we had a real conversation, your heart is turned from the Lord. And the Lord loves you enough to set up a weekend with friends and leaders and pastors and staff that's, and, and worship leaders that are trying to waken up your heart to say that the Lord sees where you're at and he doesn't want you to be there and he's giving you a warning shot to say that if you keep going this way, it's gonna be to your destruction. Like, let's have a real conversation about sin. Sin never pays off. There's never one time that somebody says, at the end of sinning, you know what? This did everything that it told me it was going to do. Sin most often promises more than it delivers and demands more than it says that it's going to cost and leaves you feeling empty. Real talk, when you lay in bed at night after having the fill of your sin, there's something in you that says that this wasn't enough. Because sin will never satisfy. Sin will never create. Sin will never fill and make whole. Sin only destroys and distorts and empties. And that's why at the end of the day, you can have all of the sex. You can have all of the money. You can have all the things that sin promises and you still feel empty, maybe emptier than you were when you started. And the Lord says, living in Nineveh is never going to pay off. And I love you enough to tell you that. Let me ask another question. Where's Nineveh? And you're like, 
in Iraq, north of Mosul, and in my heart, apparently. Let me ask it this way. Where's the place that the Lord is asking you, believer, to lean in and tell of his mercy and grace that you refuse to go? Where's the place that you're saying, Lord, you can give your grace, but not to them. Lord, you can rescue, you can save, you can deliver. Jesus, you can pay it all. Yes, I will praise the one who paid the debt, but you ain't paying their debt. And if you're going to do it, you ain't using me to do it. For some of you, that might be a location. For some of you, that might be a people group. That are in our day and age, it's, it's not hard. Uh, we have gotten really good at drawing lines and saying, you're the enemy. If you don't believe me, um, just, uh, you can't do it because you don't have any service up here. I was going to say, just pull out your phone, open up your social media account, and watch people bicker at each other and not even talk about the issue, but just talk about how, how the other person is the enemy. And so maybe that enemy is in, in our cultural moment. If you, are, if you stand on one side of vaccines and that person stands on the other side of vaccines, Lord, don't give your grace to them. Or maybe in our moment, uh, as I was driving through Visalia, like there are, there are political signs everywhere. And I'm like, oh gosh, like this, this is serious. But maybe if somebody voted different than your family typically votes, you're like, Lord, they don't deserve your mercy. Let's have a real conversation. Um, we are uh, in a Christian setting, and so often the world around us sees us as bigots, and we get mad that they see us that way. And so we say, hey, you know what, LGBTQTIA plus community, you don't deserve the Lord's mercy. We're not, we're not interacting with you. And there's this danger that we've named people Nineveh and said that we won't go when the Lord's saying, no, you who know my mercy should share my mercy with them. I just, I'm fearful that it's become way too easy for us to descend into indifference. And now we got to deal with this awkward conversation of, wait a minute, you know the one that rules and reigns and that can transform hearts and you weren't willing to tell me? There's an author named Preston Sprinkle. And uh, Preston has been really helpful for growing me and my understanding uh, of cultural situations like same-sex attraction. And one of the things that he said is he interviewed hundreds of young adults and students who were same-sex attracted. And they said, I have never been shocked by what the church believes about my lifestyle. I've just been heartbroken about the way that they've communicated it. The gospel's never a permission to be a jerk. And what if the Lord's saying, I want you to engage, enter in, love, show mercy. And we've said, but no, that's Nineveh. I'm running the other direction. The book of Jonah is not about just about a guy thousands of years ago that didn't want to go to a place that the Lord told him to go. It's a reflection of the human heart that those who know the Lord often can descend into this level of indifference that we don't care about the world around us and the way that it's falling apart if people don't line up with where we're at. And that makes us just as much a part of Nineveh as Nineveh themselves. And my prayer for us this week is that the Lord would expose that and root that out of us. And that we would be a people that because he's removed the Nineveh in us, that he's empowered us to go to the Nineveh around us.
And so here's what I want to do. I just want to give you a few moments before the Lord. Uh, oftentimes when I get to preach to students, uh, I start in John 1. John 1 is, uh, this, John doesn't write a birth narrative about Jesus. John writes a, a story that is, um, it's more ethereal. It's more, it doesn't feel like it's on the ground. He starts about the, with the word becoming flesh. But when Jesus finally shows up, Andrew and John are like following Jesus, like literally like kind of stalking him. And Jesus spins around and says to them, what are you here for? And their response to him is, uh, Jesus, where do you live at? Which I'm like, you got Jesus' attention, you gonna ask him for his address? <laughs> but it actually is a better question than what it sounds like. Because it's a question that says, Jesus, I'm here to find out where you are because that's where I wanna be. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna ask you what you're here for. Maybe you're in this place of Jonah where your heart has descended into indifference and it's cold and you're running from the Lord. And my hope is that you would know the mercy of God can outpace you. One of the things I love about Apollo, he is a fast little kid. And in my heart, I'm like, oh yeah, you are my retirement plan. Like <laughs> run. But as fast as he is, as his dad, when I want to catch him, I can outrun him. You might be really proficient at sin, but you can't outrun the mercy of God. And I love the story of Jonah because it says, you can't hide from his presence. He will catch you. Like, I know that the rules are don't skip meetings, don't skip meals, don't mess around, and there's another M and I don't remember it right now, but be modest, thank you. You might, you might be physically in the meeting, you're like, but I'm not going to listen to anything that he says. I just know the Lord. And I've heard stories of people in their dorm room having a conversation with somebody and the Lord breaks them. You ain't going to hide from his presence. And so let's just have a conversation. What are you here for? Maybe you're here and you know and love the Lord, but he's been calling you somewhere. And you've been denying it because like, what it would say about me if I went to go be with those people? Instead, what if you responded faithfully to the call? Or maybe, just maybe, you're in the place, you're hearing the goodness of the Lord, you want to go and you just need the courage. Tomorrow we'll talk a lot about the sovereignty of the Lord to accomplish his purposes with, with imperfect people. And maybe you're nervous because you're like, there's no way that the Lord could use me. That makes you the perfect candidate for the Lord to use you. And so I just want to ask you for a few moments to go before the Lord and answer the question, what am I here for? And then I'll pray for you as we end our time. So I just want to give you a couple of minutes. Jesus, I thank you that you are the better Jonah. That while the Jonah of this narrative runs from the difficult place, 
you would condescend yourself, that you would come down from heaven and enter into a rebellious world full of rebellious people who did not honor your name and run after them with the mercy of your cross. And so we can know that mercy and we can know that kindness and it's what leads us to seeking your forgiveness. And so Lord, for those of us who our hearts have grown cold, that we are indifferent to what you've called us to be and indifferent to your way, Lord, today would you chase our hearts down, that it's a good sign of the Spirit that he would convict us. And so Lord, would you convict us of the emptiness of sin, of the foolishness of thinking that we know we can run our lives better than you can. Lord, would you make us aware of the places that we've named to be Nineveh, the people who we said aren't worthy of your grace, the, the groups of people who we've said, there's no way that the Lord can pay their debt. There's no way that the Lord can redeem them. Would you uh, help us to see those biases in our hearts? And Lord, would you pluck them out by the grace of the gospel. Lord, I know that this is night one, but Lord, would you start here stirring in us a desire to see that we might be living like Jonah, that you might turn our hearts from being like Jonah's and make our hearts, mold our hearts to be more like yours. It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen.